0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Nicholas Davies, an independent journalist and author who assesses the United Nations' new role in negotiating a peace deal in Afghanistan, America's longest war. Marge Baker of People for the American Way, who discusses the fight in opposition to Republican-sponsored voter suppression laws that has recently enlisted the support of major U.S. corporations. And Mark Hovell, one of seven members of the Kings Bay Plowshares Action Against Nuclear Weapons, who talks about the action and his recent court appearance, where he was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: In a split-screen spectacle on Israeli television, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sat in court surrounded by his lawyers as testimony began in his corruption and fraud trial. Supporters and opponents could be heard yelling outside the court in this first criminal trial of a sitting Israeli prime minister. Two years ago, Netanyahu was indicted in three cases for trading legislative action in exchange for favorable news coverage. Netanyahu has also been charged with accepting $200,000 in gifts from wealthy supporters. The right-wing prime minister has pleaded not guilty to charges of bribery, breach of trust, and fraud in a case that, along with an inconclusive election last month, has clouded his prospects of remaining in office. In Trumpian style, Netanyahu blasted the 63-page indictment as fake news and a coup attempt. The most serious charge involves the Prime Minister's support of legislation to benefit telecom mogul Shaul Elevich and his wife Iris in exchange for positive coverage on Walla, a news site they controlled. Former CEO Alan Yashua described how the couple put pressure on Walla editors to give the Prime Minister positive coverage. Yahshua only broke off his relationship with the Eleviches after authorities began investigating Netanyahu's links with the owners of media companies. The COVID-19 pandemic that spread across the world last March is responsible for more than 560,000 deaths in the U.S. and some 2.9 million fatalities worldwide. Yet this nightmarish year was a boom time for tech moguls and billionaires across the globe. Forbes Magazine's annual listing counted 30% more billionaires, with 86% of them boosting their net worth in the midst of lockdowns and massive unemployment. According to Vox, six of the world's 10 richest people made their money in tech, and the total assets controlled by all tech billionaires globally totals $2.5 trillion, far more than any other industry. That does not include Tesla and SpaceX founder Elon Musk, who is the second richest person in the world after Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, who is the world's wealthiest person for the third year in a row, now worth $113 billion? The pandemic has energized the debate over inequality, with nations like Argentina adopting a wealth tax and other similar proposals gaining ground in the U.S. Although many Americans have more personal income and savings than they had before the pandemic, due in part to government stimulus checks, 10 million jobs have been lost. This has triggered record demand at food pantries, with some billionaire philanthropists stepping in to help shore up the nation's tattered social safety net. With nearly 100,000 members, the Democratic Socialists of America has crafted a compelling agenda, which grew out of the 2016 Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. The DSA, which was formed in a merger between two groups during the 1980s, has four members currently serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. That includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Cori Bush, plus scores of local and state elected officials. With its pragmatic approach to electoral politics within the Democratic Party, DSA is the most dynamic socialist organization in the U.S. in decades. While progressives have rallied around an agenda advocating Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, there is growing unease over far-left sectarian groups seeking to gain a foothold within DSA, actions similar to what led to the breakup of Students for a Democratic Society in the late 1960s. Several DSA founders who lived through sectarian strife during that period now warn that the group Socialist Alternative, with ties to the militant tendency of the British Labour Party, may be planning to act as a party within a party and damage the mainstream appeal of the DSA. They want to preserve internal rules that allow for expulsion of disruptive individuals or groups hostile to DSA's mission. They also expressed concern that some left sectarian groups view DSA as a ripe target for a hostile takeover with a goal of recruiting young DSA members to their organizations. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: his defeat in the 2020 presidential election, President Trump made a deal with the Taliban in Afghanistan to withdraw all U.S. forces from that war-ravaged nation by May 1, 2021. President Joe Biden has said logistical issues would prevent Washington from honoring that agreement, but reports say he'll be sending all remaining American troops home by this September eleventh, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the U.S., by al-Qaeda. There are some 3,500 American soldiers now in Afghanistan, but only a small contingent of Marines will remain at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul after the September 11th withdrawal. U.S. officials have said that airstrikes and raids by special operations troops based outside the country could be employed if intelligence found that al-Qaeda posed a growing threat. It's estimated that since the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, 157,000 people have been killed, including 43,000 civilians. More than 2,300 U.S. troops have lost their lives in the conflict. The United Nations, together with Turkey and Qatar, recently announced that a high-level conference aimed at ending decades of conflict in Afghanistan will begin on April 24, bringing together representatives of both the Afghan government and the Taliban. Your reporter spoke with Nicholas Davies, an independent journalist and author, who assesses the UN's new role in negotiating a peace deal in Afghanistan, America's longest war.
2: There have been talks between the Kabul government and the Taliban. They basically reached a deadlock. The summer is coming, spring and summer in Afghanistan, that is the fighting season. If, you know, if the war just rages on through this summer, um, clearly the the US government is is very nervous about where things will stand by the fall because the the Taliban has the upper hand in the actual civil war and will almost certainly you know just keep gaining more territory. Of course this puts the Taliban in a very strong negotiating position so what? the U.S. has done is to invite the United Nations to lead a a peace process involving a ceasefire and some kind of political transition, you know, to basically shift all of this from the, you know, civil war to, you know, a political process of some kind. The U.S. is trying to, you know, they have finally relinquishing their, their, their stranglehold over the negotiations and the peace process and and basically asking others to get involved. A group comprised of the UN, the United States, Turkey and Qatar handed over nine guiding principles for the summit to the Afghan government and the Taliban. President Ghani held his own little conference in uh, Tajikistan last week. His pronouncements may just amount to a starting negotiating position. But, you know, he is more or less rejecting the idea of a transitional government and essentially saying that he will not give up power except through an election. And you know the basic concept of of Blinken's proposal and the UN proposal is to have a political transition with a you know a, a joint government with people from both sides that would then hold an election.
0: What are the prospects for the survival of the Afghan government under current President Ashraf Ghani, if and when the U.S. troops are withdrawn? the Taliban are gaining strength in the countryside and have logistical control over more than half the country, will that Afghan government, that U.S.-supported government survive, do you think?
2: Well, that all depends, doesn't it, on on under what circumstances the U.S. is withdrawing. Um, Is the U.S. still conducting airstrikes? Is, um, Is there a ceasefire? between the government and the Taliban? Is there an agreement on, you know, some kind of power sharing and political transition agreement to to, to get through, um, you know, a transitional phase um, that can lead to Afghans from, from all over Afghanistan taking part in either an election or some more, traditional form of assembly that uh you know they 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 have these things they called lo- lawyer jurgas there, there have been a couple of those since the u.s invasion where you know where tribal leaders and people come from all over the country and and uh you know all get together and uh discuss plans for the country um but it, it really depends on the circumstances, and that is that is why I mean this UN-led peace process is absolutely critical. If if there cannot be some sort of agreement between the Ghani government and the Taliban, then what has changed? I, I mean the the thing is the US, with whatever influence it has over the Ghani government, you know, ha, has to be very careful here because with the Taliban, you know, holding the upper hand in the actual fighting, if the U- U.S. and or the U.S.-backed government try to act too tough in these negotiations and uh, are not willing to, to you know, give up significant amount of power, then the, the Taliban could, you know, they, they would really have the option of just deciding to keep fighting. I mean, it's, it hasn't been going too badly for them, but... Of course, the, the, you know, the, the death toll is horrendous. Uh, um, the government claimed it, it killed uh, 160 Taliban fighters in uh, Kandahar province just in the last few days. They've retaken uh, one district there, apparently, according to the government.
0: That was Nicholas J.S. Davies, an independent journalist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion and Destruction of Iraq. Find a link to his recent article, co-written with Code Pink Women for Peace co-founder Medea Benjamin, titled What's Really Going On in Afghanistan, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. An early April Reuters Ipsos poll finds that 55% of Republicans believe Donald Trump's 2020 election defeat resulted from illegal voting or election rigging. While 35% of Republicans agreed that people who gathered at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th were peaceful, law-abiding Americans, and that the violent riot was actually led by left-wing protesters trying to make Trump look bad. The big lie about voter fraud, promoted by the disgraced former president and his allies, provides a deceitful justification to continue a pattern begun over a decade ago, where Republican legislators today are working to pass more than 360 voter suppression laws in 47 states. These legislative proposals are similar to measures recently signed into law in Georgia, designed to make it more difficult for communities of color and young people to vote in future elections. Your reporter spoke with Marge Baker, Executive Vice President for Policy and Program with People for the American Way. Here she talks about the battle against proposed GOP voter suppression bills across the U.S. that has recently enlisted the support of some major U.S. corporations and the fight for passage of the sweeping electoral reform bill, known as For the People Act, in the U.S. Senate.
3: Republican legislatures around the country were not happy with the fact that so many people voted in the last election, and have drummed up and tried to perpetuate this big lie that there's voter fraud. And of course, it's not been documented in any way, shape, or form. I mean, there are countless, countless lawsuits and and independent audits, and there's just they cannot find voter fraud. It is a big lie, but they continue to to push it, and they push it because they only want certain people to vote. And so there's more than 360 measures in 47 states. And there are at least 55 pieces of legislation moving now through various legislatures, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, and many, many more, um, with an effort to try to limit access to voting and those limitations unduly impact communities of color. It's things like draconian IDs that are needed to vote and making it harder to to put your vote in a drop box and limiting the circumstances under which you can vote by mail and what's necessary in order to vote by mail, limiting early voting. So many things that were tried very effectively made necessary because of the pandemic and that worked Amazingly, to increase turnout and increase accessibility to the polls, but that's not what they want. They don't want everybody to vote. They only want certain people to vote.
0: Well, Marge, one interesting development that we've seen unfold in, in recent days, and that is activists have pressured corporations, first in Georgia, where companies like Delta Airlines, Home Depot, and Coca-Cola are based, trying to get them to enlist opposition to these uh, draconian voter suppression laws. These companies did not act before the law was passed and signed into law in Georgia, but they've piped up recently. Black corporate executives from around the country have uh, similarly stepped up to oppose these laws publicly. Just the other day, I read that 100 business leaders from major corporations all across the country have been on on a conference call planning to attack Republican voter suppression laws. And they've discussed things like withholding campaign contributions from the Republican candidates who support these voter suppression laws. And there's also the possibility these companies could withdraw business from the states that are enacting such voter suppression laws. What yeah, do you think is going on here?
3: That's exactly right. And and it's and it's a it's a prominent set of companies on AMC Theater, Starbucks, United Airlines, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, Boston Consulting Group, Levi Strauss. It's a broad range. Of companies And what's going on, I think, um, is that this is a moment when the American public are demanding to know not just which side their elected officials are, but which side the companies that they do business are on the side of. This is a moment in time. Are you on the side of right? Are you on the side of fairness? Are you on the side of something that's draconian voter suppression, not acceptable, not consistent with our democratic ideals? And this is a time to choose. Which side of history are you going to be on? And I think these companies are indicative of the power of the people in in demanding which side of history both their elected officials and the companies that they are doing business with need to be on.
0: So a, a major piece of legislation called the For the People Act is a democracy reform, electoral reform bill that passed the House. It's now awaiting action in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Senate, but of course with the Democrats only having uh, effectively 51 votes with Vice President Kamala Harris, they need to either reform the filibuster or get rid of it or recruit 10 Republicans to join them. Tell us a little bit about the battle ahead for the People Act in the U.S. Senate.
3: This is the boldest democracy promotion measure in decades, and it it includes um, measures that we've been talking about to address the suppression of the vote and to improve access to the vote to just make voting easier it's got measures to help diminish the influence of big money in politics in particular through a um a small donor matching grant program that allows candidates without deep pockets to to run for office um, it also has really important efforts to curtail partisan gerrymandering which is the process where elected officials in closed rooms, draw up the maps that allow them to pick their voters as opposed to the voters picking them. So it's a huge, huge, and I've just touched the surface. It's comprehensive. It is bold. um, It is exciting. Um, And you're absolutely right. It passed the House and is in the Senate, and the Senate is 50-50 split in the Senate. And so I think based on just the vote count and where Republicans in the Senate have announced They are is very, very unlikely to get the 60 votes that would be necessary under current Senate rules to cut off debate to end a filibuster. And so we are probably moving to a showdown over whether the rules of the Senate will be changed so that this measure could pass with 51 votes. It's possible to do. Republicans have done it many times in many different contexts and different matters. But this is going to be um, a major fight. It's going to come to a head over whether a bill that has just broad public support. Three-quarters of the American people want this bill and want all provisions of this bill. The voting rights provisions, the campaign finance provisions, the gerrymandering provisions, they want all of it. And it's going to be a huge, huge test of whether there will be 51 votes to to move the measure, measure forward.
0: That was Marge Baker, Executive Vice President for Policy and Program, with People for the American Way. Find more views on the Republican Party's effort to impose voter suppression laws in 47 states by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On April 4, 2018, seven members of a group of Catholic anti-nuclear activists, calling themselves the Kings Bay Plowshares, entered the Kings Bay Naval Base in Georgia, the largest nuclear submarine base in the world. There, they symbolically poured their blood on military equipment at the base, declaring that nuclear weapons represent omnicide, or the death of all life on Earth. Three years and five days later, the last of the seven members of the group was sentenced, when Mark Covell received 21 months in federal prison for conspiracy, destruction of property on a naval installation, depredation of government property, and trespassing, due to time already served in prison after his arrest, Covell expects he'll only serve a few months. Most of the other defendants in the case receive similar sentences. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Colville who co-founded the Amistad Catholic Worker House of Hospitality in New Haven, Connecticut, with his wife, Luz. Here he discusses how he tried to use his sentencing to expose the role of the court in maintaining the current system of nuclear armaments and why his group chose to launch their action on the anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr.
4: They kind of bury all the injustice in sort of a, these bureaucratic back and forth, you know, I really didn't want this to be about me as much as possible. I want it to be about um, holding the court accountable for its behavior. You know, my uh, central point was that it was clear that the court was not in place to find justice in this case. It was in place to uh, to run interference for the federal government and the national security state. Specifically, this court made sure that there would be no discussion of the legality of nuclear weapons. And not even any breach of the secrecy that the whole nuclear program is immersed in. To the point where a jury chosen from right around, you know, the neighborhoods around Kings Bay, they actually asked the court to confirm whether or not there were nuclear weapons on the base. These are weapons that can kill 6 billion people. I wanted to hold the court accountable for having prejudged me in the sense that they were going to keep this secret for the government and they were not going to let any question about the legality of nuclear weapons to be questioned.
2: So, as you noted, Mark Colville, you were the last of the seven defendants to be sentenced. How did you feel about your 21-month sentence, you know, in comparison to what others got? I know your wife, Luce Colville, said she was surprised it wasn't longer, like 27 months. The judge seemed kind of loath to sentence you, but she still had to do it because you had broken the law.
4: It was clear that what the judge was looking for from each of us, what they call acceptance of responsibility. I mean, again, it's an Orwellian term, the way they use it, because I mean, we were actually, our our sentencing guidelines were actually increased because the the government contended that we didn't take responsibility for our actions. Of course, we know from the federal system itself that whenever anybody uh, refuses a plea deal and takes something to trial, and loses, they always get charged with not accepting responsibility, simply because they think they had an argument before the court, and they wanted to make it. So we were thrown into that category, actually, for the first time, I, I believe, in a plowshares trial, that became a theme for me to, to focus on what, well, what is exactly accepting responsibility? What does that mean in this trial, right? But it was clear that the judge wanted these expressions of remorse, or You know, I won't do it again, that sort of thing. And that was not forthcoming from me. But she had been lenient with everybody else except for Steve Kelly. He doesn't cooperate at all with with the federal government. And he has a very principled stand against that. So that was my favorite moment, by the way, when when the judge at that kind of Southern drawl said, well, your criminal history is a bit troubling.
2: (laughs) You did your action three years ago on April 4th which was the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. What was the significance of that date? And how has that reverberated, if at all, with the peace or social justice communities?
4: Well, the significance of it, first of all, comes right from Martin Luther King's own thought and and many of his speeches. And, And one quote that became sort of a clarion call for us was when he said, the ultimate logic of racism is genocide. When I say it became a call for us, it was because we had already been discerning that this action as a real public witness needed to be connected concretely, you know, make the connection between racism and genocide. And then of course, what we're talking about with nuclear weapons is omnicide, you know, the killing of everything. And, and really um, we, we began to draw parallels between white supremacy and this uh, assuming of the right to hold all creation Uh, with a gun to its head, that really what nuclearism essentially is, is white supremacy on, you know, on steroids, as they like to say, right? And then, and then, of course, from a faith-based perspective or a biblical perspective, it became very uh, important to us to point out the idolatry of nuclear weapons, you know, idolatry as a biblical concept, meaning replacing God with something else, usually an object or You know, weapons of war are often in in the Psalms are called gods of metal.
0: That was Mark Colville, one of seven members of the Kings Bay Plowshares Action against nuclear weapons. He's co-founder of the Amistad Catholic Worker House in New Haven, Connecticut, where our reporter Melinda Tuhus has volunteered. Learn more about Kings Bay and other anti-nuclear weapons plowshares actions by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio, and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall. Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.